five, six, seven, eight. Hi, friends. We are so thrilled to have Kate Lumpkin joining us on the podcast today. We met Kate while working on Kerrigan and Loudermilk's The Mad Ones Lab. And after taking her classes, we knew we had to invite her to join us for a chat. Kate is a casting director based in New York City, where she is the founder and lead casting director of Kate Lumpkin Casting. Her credits include fan-favorite shows such as the national tour of Bandstand and the off-Broadway production of We Are the Tigers. Kate also works as an educator, teaching workshops in many colleges, universities, and institutions, as well as offering one-on-one coaching. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for being here. Hi, friends. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for joining us. We are so thrilled to have you on Breaking the Curtain. Ever since we started the podcast, it's you've been on our list of people we have wanted to talk to. Oh, so fancy. <laughs> Thank you. That makes me so happy. Thank well, you. Of course. That's so kind. We were so fortunate to work with Kate on the Mad Ones Lab back in, what was it, September, October? October. Crazy. Oh my gosh. So long ago now. Um, but for those who might not know a whole lot, would you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? About me? Oh, sure. I thought you were going to say about the Mad Ones Lab. And I was like, sure, I'll talk about that too. It was so exciting. Um, sure, about me. Um, I have spent uh, the better part of the last decade as a casting director based out of New York City. I'm also a writer and a producer. And in a past life, I was an actor and an anthropologist. Um, So all of those things kind of play together in how I spend my days. But before the pandemic, I was spending most of my time um, in auditions as casting director. So who knows what my life will look like as we start coming back into theater spaces. There are lots of different opportunities and things that are happening. Um, but yeah, most of what I've done for the last decade is cast new works, uh, specifically new plays and musicals all over the United States. And I've done some stuff in Canada. So hey, hey, Woo! hey, Canada. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. I love working with new artists and on new projects. That's kind of my jam, especially projects that have um, really challenging or difficult finds. And um, what that means is people who are true multi-hyphenates or speak 10 languages or scuba dive live on stage. Um, that's what I'm really excited about. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of been what I've done for, for a while now. Amazing. Yeah. And to put it in layman's terms, what does a casting director do? Yeah. So a casting director is a lot of things. Technically, if we're just like defining the job itself on paper, what the producers think they're paying you for, um, a casting director is hired to come in and schedule and find artists who will audition for a production and then get hired for said production, hopefully. Um, But I think a casting director is a lot more than that. Um, Though you do have to love a spreadsheet, honey. And you do have to love organizing all of that because that is a huge part of the job. I think that casting as an art form actually is, it's so important and not everyone really considers it for what it is. It is understanding a community of artists and figuring out and helping a project navigate who the people in your community are that are going to actually serve your work. You're a little bit of a politician. You're a little bit of a therapist. You're a little bit of a best friend. You're a little bit of a like pusher. I'm a pusher, Katie. That's what I do. I push like you do all sorts of things. And at the end of the day, casting makes history and casting pushes the industry and the world forward. Um, And so there is a great weight and a great responsibility to what we do. Um, and our main job, in my opinion, is to create safe spaces for people to do dangerous work um, and highly publicly personal work. Um, and so I think the greatest casting directors are the ones who can handle all of the quote unquote boring stuff like spreadsheets and scheduling and organizing, but also have a finesse and a knack for making people feel at ease, for making people feel welcome, and for being able to communicate with a creative team in a way that they provide options that that creative team never even thought of before. We are, um, Victor Vazquez, who's another casting director who I really admire, um, he says we are professional imaginers. We um, use our imagination professionally, and I really like that. Totally stole it from Victor, though. Give him all the credit in the world. I love that. I love that, yeah. (laughs) That actually just gave me so many chills. I, I love how passionate you are. Hey, thanks. How does one become a casting director? I'm the worst person in the world to ask that question because 
because my path towards doing what I do was so bizarre and, and I think beautiful, um, but not in any way, shape or form, like the traditional quote unquote way that you become a casting director in the past, like historically to become a casting director, first of all, there's no degree in casting. You can't, you can't study it in college and, and get a you know degree in it. So it's an apprentice based business historically, which means you have to work with someone who's done it to learn how to do it. Um, thank God that is changing because when something is an apprentice-shaped business, um, there's no way to hold anyone accountable. There's no standards of practice. And it's like based on connections. And that is not an equitable system. When you don't have standards of practice, you can't hold anyone accountable. So a lot of things slips through the cracks. So luckily that's kind of changing. However, traditionally it has been that you um, get an internship or an assistant position. You work under someone, then you are the next level of casting. You go from casting assistant to casting associate, and then you work under someone for a while. And once you've been an associate for a while, you become a casting director. Me, however, um, I started working as someone's assistant and then I worked there for a while, went to Fox and I was an assistant on a lot of pilots there for a couple of years. And then I was like, enough, I'm starting my own company. I'm a casting director now. And I just called myself a casting director and I bought a domain name and I said, this is what I do now. Um, and I did. And I wrote a lot of folks and said, I want to work with you. And some people were really generous and said, okay, I trust you. Um, and we built from there. So I didn't kind of like go through the normal rank rank system. Um, and my background, I studied drama. I uh, went to Ithaca for a while in their musical theater program. And I also have a certificate in Meister Technique from the William Esper Studios. Um, but I actually went to school. I went back to school and studied anthropology and folklore. So I studied culture and society and the way we tell stories. Um, and I think that actually had the biggest impact on how I approach casting. Um, so all that to say, you don't have to major in something specific in college. My thought is if you wanna be a casting director, you need to know things about acting and directing. And you also need to know things about human nature and humanity. So whatever that looks like to you, whatever you wanna study, go for it um, because it will all serve you in the end. I didn't follow any sort of specific path. So if you are looking for a linear based answer to that, I, I'm not the person for that. <laughs> No, I think that's inspiring. You knew what you wanted to do and you did it. I think that's really, really you cool. Know what yeah. you want, then you go and you find it and you get it. Sondheim taught us that, honey, and we got to repeat it over and over and over and over again. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that. <laughs> so this year has been a difficult one for those of us who work in the arts, but there have also been some really kind of amazing new developments that have come from live theater being shut down you know, what is something that has kind of excited or inspired you with how the theater community has kind of came back during this difficult time? Oh, the fact that we're actually talking about uh, systemic racism, the fact that we're talking about um, white supremacist undertones in everything that this industry has, the fact that we're actually calling out unions on the facts that they need to change things that have been antiquated practices for a very long time. The fact that we're talking about producers and boards being all white and how that's highly problematic. The fact that we are highlighting trans and queer voices in a way that we haven't for a ever period, the end of sentence mm -hmm. forever. Um, and the fact that people are not willing to put up with the bullshit anymore. Um, and people are holding each other accountable. Uh, it's something that I don't think our industry has done for a very long time, if ever in this same way. Um, and it's really, really, really important. And my biggest fear is that as we start coming back, um, those conversations will fade away and those conversations will become once more about like how do we just get back to where we were and we can't that's not sustainable and it's not um healthy and it's not actually in any way shape or form um helping to shape the future it's living in the past and in a really problematic past so i think that's the best thing that's come out of this also everyone getting some rest also this wrestling with the idea of hustle culture maybe not actually being the healthiest way to survive as artists and creatives um but i mean honestly the most important conversations and aha moments for this industry have been the fact that our that people of color and queer folks in our community have had the courage to come forward and say like we're 
hello, <laughs> hello, do the work, do the work enough. Yeah. Um, that wasn't their responsibility. It was a gift that they gave this industry. And um, I just hope people are going to continue to do the work that needs to be done. So I'm very grateful for the yeah, gift. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I agree. This time has the pause, like I said, it's given us time, the gift of time to have these conversations to rebuild better than we were. We don't want to go back to normal when normal was hurtful, right? We want to move forward and be better and hold ourselves to a higher standard. And if we don't, then that says it's time for this industry to not be here anymore, in my opinion. Yeah. If we cannot listen and activate and make real changes and make new hires and step back from jobs that need to be done by other folks, then then okay, then it's time to create a new art form and start again. Uh, because if, if we waste any of the energy or the gifts that have come from this truly horrific time, um, then it's our own fault. <laughs> it's our own fault. Um, yeah. and, and that's not okay. I, I could not agree more. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. What do you wish performers knew about the panel while in the casting room? I think this comes down to a conversation I've been having on a lot of these like panels and inter interviews that I've been doing over this past year is like, um, I think casting directors and creative team members expect a lot from auditioners. We expect people to be um, sharing of themselves and uh, coming into the space and being free and open and yet the panel, as you called them, or the, the creative team, the people in that space, traditionally have not been doing the same, have not been necessarily giving of themselves in a public way so that people know who they are when they walk into the room, which creates a really strange and not fair dichotomy in that space. When you're asking someone to come in and be like, hey, this is me, this is who I am, this is my soul, and they're staring at a table full of people who they don't know anything about, that's like not equitable. <laughs> that's actually not a shared space. So I, I hope the answer to your question is that ask, like when we start going into these audition rooms more and more and more, that the people who are in that room already, the folks at the piano and sitting at that table and at, in the reader's chair, I hope they're sharing more of themselves in ways that allow actors and creatives and dancers, all those folks who come into the space to know more about who they are. So it doesn't feel quite so um, terrifying. Um, because the reality is, everyone always says it in every drama class, right? Like, they really do want you to be the person. And and we do. Like, I mean, I don't get paid most of the time until the show is cast. Like, I want my coin. So I really need you to, like, be it, right? Like, I, and not just because emotionally, emotionally I want it too, but if we're just talking pure coin, like, I really do. So that is true. But how do you know that if we're not talking about it, if we're not being present and vulnerable and public about who we are too, so that people who walk in are like, oh, that's Kate. I know Kate. You know, Kate uses she, her pronouns. Kate is a nerd. Kate likes Sherlock. Kate drinks iced coffee 24 hours a day. Like I know something about her. So I feel confident that I can stand in front of her and sing my song. And I know I'm not being judged. I know we're just two humans in the space. That is going to change the industry that understanding that all of us in that space are just human. And so that's what I want people to know moving forward is that everyone in that room is also just human. They're also big nerds. Um, they have <laughs> lives that are complicated and they have to do things to protect themselves just like everybody else does. So some people protect themselves in that space by, have, by having an attitude or by looking at their laptop or by eating a sandwich. It's not actually about you most of the time, those things that people do. Um, it's about a nine hour day um, in a space trying to stay present uh, and also to protect their energies and everyone manifests that in different ways. Um, I think also just from a technical perspective, people just want you to come in, be yourself and be prepared. Um, the preparation is just so important and people can always tell when you haven't done the work. Um, and it's always a bit disappointing pointing because we did so much work. Everyone in that room did so much work to make that room even happen that when someone comes in and they haven't done their work, it's truly disappointing um, because hours and weeks and months and sometimes years of prep work have happened in order to make that one audition room 
happen. Um, so when anyone comes in and hasn't done the prep work, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, and because, like I said, we're all humans in that space, we feel that and it's, it's hard. And then you feel it, <laughs> you know, like, because we're humans in the space. And when we feel something, you feel something. Okay. So if we all show up, we all be humans. We honor the humanity of the space and we all do our prep work. It's going to get better and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. That makes sense. That. Yeah. Okay. So much sense. That's perfectly said. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Perfection is a societal construct, but it is in fact what I said. So if it resonates, great. I love that. <laughs> and that's actually, I think, one of the things we love about you is how openly you talk about uh, the audition room and creating it into this space that isn't like two-sided and it's more circular as opposed to like sides of the table. And so we were hoping uh, when we had you here, if there were any like myths about the casting room that you wanted to take the opportunity to bust? Um, myths? I mean, are there some myths that come to your brain that you want me to bust? I can bust down any myths you want me to. You know, I think they're the common ones. They're the, um, they're the things that, you know, go through any performer's head, head I think, when they're going in. Like, like you said about people conserving their energy by like being on their laptop or eating or this or that. Like, you know, maybe it's bringing an overdone song in the, into the room. Maybe it's the part that you're going for. Maybe it's whether or not you have an agent or an agency or representation. Okay, first of all, um, overdone songs. I hate do not sing lists. I think they're highly problematic because A, not everyone has resources or access to education that teaches them about other songs. So to say, do not sing this song, in my opinion, is a highly capitalist, really, really, really um, unhealthy approach to this work. If you're going to sing something that you know is pretty well known, if you're going to walk in and sing Defying Gravity, fierce, live your best life, but you better do something with it that makes it feel like you, because if you walk in and you're trying to sing it just like Adina Menzel on a cast recording, you are not Adina Menzel. No one is. There have been 16 other folks who have played Elphaba on Broadway. None of them sound like Adina. They're all tremendous humans and tremendous artists, but they all sound different. And why they've booked that role is because they bring something entirely unique to it. Jessica Vosk's you know, Elphaba is very different from Lindsay Mendez's Elphaba is very different from Adina Menzel's Elphaba. They're all fierce, but they're all wildly different. So you have the same opportunity, no matter what music you bring in. And also if you pick something that is so avant-garde, so random, a lot of times the people at the table are like, what is, what, what is that? And I spend more time thinking about what it is that you're singing than watching you do the work. Um, so I do think there's a fine balance between like, only singing songs that are like wildly overdone and spending hours and hours trying to find the most random song that no one has ever heard from this obscure musical from 1918, right? Like find the balance and, and do what works for you, right? Um, because at the end of the day, I have watched people book shows in front of my eyes singing songs that you would be like, what? We were told never to sing that song. You can't sing Don't Rain on My Parade. Yes, you can. I've watched people book with it. So like, Okay. Um, the, what else did you say? You said um, about people being on their laptops and whatnot. One of the other things to remember is that we have to send callbacks in real time. So we're also answering emails from like 60 agents throughout the day. We're trying to send callbacks. We're trying, there are people writing emails saying, oh God, I'm stuck on the C train and I'm going to be late. So people are like rescheduling throughout the day. And especially if you're going in for someone that has a very small office, is an independent and doesn't necessarily have two associates and an, an assistant, they're doing the work by themselves. They're doing all of those, those roles by themselves in real time. So, um, trust and believe that not everyone is actually out to get you or not paying attention, but we are trying to like navigate a lot of hats and a lot of juggling. And the most important person watching you in that space is quite often not actually the casting director. It's the director, it's the music director, it's all the other folks. So it's it's very important um, that people pay attention. I am not on my laptop ever during auditions, but I'm just here to say like, if someone is, it's not that they're not trying to pay attention to you or, or do their job. It's in fact, the exact opposite. They are trying to do all the jobs. Um, Oh goodness, you said one other one and I really wanted to talk about representation. it. Representation, like if you have an agency representing you. Yes, it really depends on the project. So 
Uh, no, truly. I mean, if you're going in for a series regular role on network television, to be perfectly frank, most of the time, those spots in that audition slot are going to folks who have agents and not just going to folks who have agents, but going to highly reputable agencies, right? Highly well known. If you're going in for a series regular on Fox, a lot of those slots, if not 90% of them are going to folks who um, have, you know, have agents. Um, however, it, I have seen, I have seen, even when I was in my network days, I have seen people who just graduated from college with no representation, who happened to go to one class. I mean, I can think of this actor right now who went to one class um, and the head of casting at Fox was like, oh, this person's tremendous, brought them in. They booked a series regular role on a pilot, right? That got picked up. So uh, it's, it's how you, my mom always said this about clothes. It's not how much your clothes cost. It's how you wear them, right? You, how you, how you hold yourself. And I have watched a lot of non-union actors and I work a lot in the non-union world. I've watched a lot of non-union actors with no representation come in and they carry themselves like, I deserve to be here. My talent is awesome. I, I got this appointment or I waited for this appointment and I'm going to show up and do the damn work. Watch me do it. And they book. And I've also seen a lot of folks with representation who come in and don't have that and don't, right? So it's it, it really doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and what really doesn't matter is once you're in that room. An agent oftentimes will help you get into certain rooms because of, um, because of relationships or because they can help with a push email. They can like really get you in there. But once you're in that room, it's an even playing field. So if you've gotten into that space and you're not represented, don't even worry about it. Oftentimes a lot of, if, you book, if you're gonna book something, casting directors will also hook you up with an agent to help you um, read the contract and negotiate it. Um, so once you're in that space, let it go. Just let it go. Cause it, it genuinely doesn't matter in there. No one's gonna be like, oh, well, you know, they both sang it really great and they're both doing great stuff, but they're repped by this person. So we gotta do it. Um, especially in the theater world that I, I'm not going to say never, maybe that has happened before, but it most of the time really does come down to what happens in the room. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Tons of great stuff. I know that, um, Chrissy and I come from kind of different training backgrounds. She trains through a studio and I went to, I went to college for musical theater and I think there are so did many. You go to Sheridan? No, I did not. Didn't get into Sheridan. <laughs> Here's the thing. The only reason I know is because it's like the one Canadian school that I had a student go to. And I just remember her being like, Sheridan's a great school. So that's not to say there are not a million great schools, but that's the one that popped into my brain. Yes. Uh, Sheridan is really big here. I ended up not getting in. But also when I went in and I auditioned for them, the audition process and kind of the feel of the school, you know, it wasn't for me anyway. And I ended up having- No, you gotta go where you feel yeah, right. I had a great time out in Windsor at St. Clair College. But, yes, you know, when you go to, you know, I think any kind of theater training, I think Chrissy can agree, you know, people tell you do's and don'ts for the audition room. And some of them make sense and other ones just kind of don't. And they feel a little outdated by this point. Can I just say one other thing? Yeah, please. Don't stare at a spot on the wall. This is the one that drives me bananas and people are still teaching it. And if you listen to this podcast and you take one thing away from this, please do not choose a spot on the wall behind the table and stare at it the entire time. That's not it. That is not what people are looking for. We're looking for like whole humans using the whole space. I call that serial killer eyes because like no one in real life stares at one spot unless they're <laughs> about to like straight up murder you, right? And it's like, if I were staring at someone like this singing a song, you can't see this pod podcast listeners, but I'm doing very intense eyes. And, and it's just not it. That's not how we express joy or love or fear or anxiety, which is when we start singing, that's what's happening. Like the emotional life is so overwhelming. We have to sing about it. Um, so I, I can think of maybe one song like from Sweeney Todd where staring at one spot is right. Um, but I, that's, that's one other myth I want to bust is that idea of like pick a spot and sing to it. No, 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 no. Use the space, use your eyes. 
shift your sight line, create a, create a reality for yourself, not Sweeney Todd eyes. I love that so much. I never said Sweeney, Sweeney Todd, Todd eyes. eyes. It's my new favorite. I do. I'm going to use that for everything now. Put on like a t-shirt. Sweeney you Todd know though with the blade and it's like, a ton the tail of Sweeney Todd. It's like very terrifying. <laughs> you know. That's yes. brilliant because it's so true. And I don't know any class that I've been in where someone isn't just staring straight ahead and and they just move their shoulders for acting because they're so focused on staring at that one spot on the wall. No, you've seen it, you know. Yeah. And there are still people who are teaching that, which is why I like to talk about it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So true. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the wonderful things you discuss is how type is an outdated term, which gosh, yes, praise. Um, <laughs> snaps. <laughs> so we're hoping you could share your views on this with our listeners and and how we can defy type in a world where it still does exist, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, to be perfectly frank, um, I have a theory about this that the, the contemporary notion of type really came out of the Hollywood studio system of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which was this idea, right, that you were hired by a studio and they kind of assessed what it was that you did and what you looked like and who you were. And then they had you do that same thing over and over and over again in movies and people became known for it, right? We saw it over and over. Ray Bolger, you are a funny dancer. You play the sidekick. You are not the romantic lead. You do this thing and it makes a lot of money, right? Or Judy Garland, you know what you're doing. You're doing all the same movies all the time. Mickey Rooney, you're gonna be funny but like you get to kiss people because right like and so we saw white men in positions of power who decided what bodies were attractive in their brain what bodies were worthy of love in their idea of a world what bodies were funny what people were funny from their perspective and we saw this over and over and over again the other thing that would happen is sometimes they would let an actor who had played one type of role a lot do something entirely different and they would win an Academy Award because it was just shocking that they could do something different. And when studios found, oh, if we have them played over and over and over the same type, then we give them a different opportunity. They'll win us awards, which makes us more money. This just was a perpetuated thing. And I think we saw that kind of system start to take place also in the theater world as well. Um, And as casting, casting in the theater world as an industry really didn't start happening until the 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s, um, because directors and choreographers were doing their own casting. There wasn't a casting director job until much later than we really imagined. Um, And so I think there's this like, we just followed kind of the model of the studio system. And especially as Broadway and as theater has become more and more commercial, it has become a machine and we don't have a lot of time. So people are just like, okay, we're going to do this thing. And like, this is what an ingenue is. And this is what a romantic lead is. And you're the funny, sexy sidekick person. And like, this is what, and it's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit because it is based on what white men in the 1930s deemed attractive or funny or problematic or all the things. And it hasn't been updated to be a reflection of who we actually are as a world, as a global community, as a, you know, as a, as a community that's talking about racism and bodies in space and all of these things. So yeah, I think type is antiquated. I think it's lazy. I think it's not progressive. I think it doesn't actually suit the world that we live in. Last time I checked, people who weigh more than 110 pounds were having sex. They were getting married. They were worthy of finding true love and they can sing well. So why do we not see any women of size playing romantic leads on stage. What the fuck is that about? Like, why, why, or maybe it's very, very, very few and far between. Last time I checked that, you know, there are very, very, very tiny petite human beings who also are funny and who are disgusting and who are uh, capable of being the ultimate villains. But we never see that. Why, why, why is this? So I think that, what we should be looking for rather than just typing people out or making decisions about people's truths based on the like flesh bag they're in, um, which is really what our bodies are, just kind of a flesh bag over bones. Um, 
we should be looking at their through line. How do they approach the world? How do they approach text? How do they move through space? What, what does their body actually do to help them tell their stories? Um, how does it serve the way that they approach text? Why are we not letting our artists tell us who they are? And then using that information to better serve the stories rather than us deeming what bodies are worthy of telling what stories. It's vast backwards. Um, and I think that's how we need to start doing things moving forward is providing more space for generals where artists can be meeting each other and getting to know each other on a human level. We should be utilizing social media where you all are actively showing us who you are in real ways. Why don't we use that to get to know humans better and then say, oh, this noodle would be fantastic in this thing because this is who this person really is. Um, and I, I think we need to be giving artists more actors, more um, moments of empowerment to share their through line and who they are. And also universities need to stop trying to teach folks who they're supposed to be and telling them they have to sing certain material because that's who they're gonna be in the industry. You wanna perpetuate mythology. They're doing it in programs all over the world. They're doing it, I'm sure in Canada, they're sure as hell doing it here in the United States, deciding who young folks are supposed to be and then telling them they have to sing certain material because no one's ever gonna see them differently. Fuck that noise. You want us to see you differently? Sing whatever the fuck you wanna sing and help us understand who you are so we can better serve you. Sorry, I went on a whole thing, but I I have strong opinions it. about this. <laughs> Snaps. I honestly think this is brilliant because when I was in college, I wish I had someone like you who was either teaching or like speaking, mentoring, because that's something I think so many people need to hear. And so many people who are kind of like put into a box by a program that's supposed to help them grow. And so I know you said earlier, you know, if there's one thing you take away, let it be this. This is another thing that like, if there are any young theater performers listening, please take this with you because it's something I wish that I had known a few years ago. If we wanna change the industry, then it has to start from the ground up too. And I say this not as a like, it's actors jobs, but I say it to give you agency, right? Like the reality is you have the opportunity every time you walk into a room to break those stereotypes, to stop, engaging with an antiquated culture and to sing, this is what I sing, right? Like, this is who I am. You might not see me as Christine Daae because you've never seen someone who looked like me play Christine Daae, but I'm going to come in and I'm going to sing the shit out of that high note and we're going to do it, right? Like, that's how, that is a, a piece of power that you actually do have. And a lot of people have tried to tell you that you don't have it. And I'm here to tell you that you do. And there will be rooms that don't get it right? There will be people and folks who are like, what was that? Great. They're not your people. They're not your room. They're not the people that you want to end up working with anyways. So know, know who you want to work with and know that not every room is going to be a yes. And that's okay because the ones that are yeses are going to have seen the true you. They're going to have seen the real you, what you want to be doing, what you want to be singing. And that that means you're being honest and truthful and everyone who's choosing to work with you knows the truth. That's great. That's it. Ooh, so excited inside. That's just so inspiring. And it's it just, it's the it truth. Just, yeah. You know? Bing, boom, done. Yes. You know? Period. Period. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's nothing else to say. That's it. That's just it. <laughs> it's true. You know, we've talked, we've already talked about a few of the changes you would like to see in the casting world. You know, what would you say the three biggest changes you would love to see in theater, you know, happen? Um, the first big change I would love to see is more systems of accountability that are present in unions and associations across the board. I think we need to have we need to have systems put in place where people can be held accountable for any problematic behavior or any sort of, you know, uh, structures that they're utilizing, they there should be accountability. So I think that's something that has been lacking for a while and we need to work on that. Um, I would really like to see yeah. more queer and BIPOC producers um, because at the end of the day, so much of this is going to come down to money and who is in these you know positions that are at the top. Um, and we need to see, there are so many qualified people of color and queer artists who have never been given a chance to sit in any of these rooms. And it's 
it's fucking time. So that is a huge change I would like to see because once people in those rooms, people on those boards, people who are, you know, leading the ship actually are reflective of the world that we live in, so will our shows be, so will our creative teams be. And we will all be the better for it. There is still room for everyone at the table. No one is asking anyone to take anything away. People are saying, please let us come create together. Um, and that is sexy, like that is, that is it. Um, another change I would like to see other than accountability and accessibility um, is just, I hope we hold on to this notion of um, honoring the fact that we are human beings and that that means we deserve rest and that means we deserve to be treated as such. So I hope we do a couple of things like using technology to create better systems for the audition process, not having people wait out in the cold at four in the morning, but you know, I honor why we've done that. I honor all of the things that like we can do better. Um, I hope we, you know, make access to health insurance more easily available for folks who are artists. I hope we make access to um, new parents and time with their children more accessible and available. And I hope people continue to take care of themselves in the way that I think they've been forced to this year. Um, and that this notion of like hustle until you die kind of culture eases a bit because I think when we are all better and more well, we will all make better art. Um, so accountability, accessibility, and wellness, I hope we see across the board. And you know, when it comes to accessibility, you talk so often about point of view. And I think it's, I think it's one of your mm -hmm. most, like most of what you say is brilliant. I, like I said, I love following you, but I love when you talk about point of view and accessibility, bringing that in does that because there are so many different points of view and our art will become more reflective of that, the more the people we can include. And I think that that is, so important. Yeah. And your point of view, it, it, it is not to say like humanity is not a monolith, right? So no matter what your background, your identity, your personhood, where you came from, what street you were raised on, every single tiny detail of your life is just your own. And it's so beautiful. Everyone's point of view is something to be listened to and, and learned from, even if it is wildly different from yours. And you're like, ah, this point of view is so frustrating. At the end of the day, the, the, the kind of clash and the collaboration and the learning, this is what makes art, this is what moves us forward as a people. Um, so I, I'm with you, my love. I think it's so vital that we all take the time to hone in on what our point of view actually is. And then we share it and we listen. Ooh, and that we listen to each other and stop talking over each other. But listen, what? <laughs> what a novel concept. <laughs> There's so many stories to be told through art. And yet we've been telling the same story yes. over and over and yeah. over again. Like, let's not just yeah. around this. Like story and the narrative that has been told for a hundred years plus in the yeah. American theater is white, upper middle class. And it is very, very, very um, much. Bingo. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Uh, if not white royalty, right? So, okay. So at the end of the day, we can't claim to be this like beautiful conglomerate of storytellers. And the reality is we are a conglomerate yeah. of storytellers who are telling one kind of story. Yeah. And so if we want to actually like be yeah. articulate in 2021, then we have to open up the gates as it were, as our dear friend, Elsa taught us to open up the gay. It's like, it's time, mm -hmm. it's time. And that's not just on Broadway, that's in theaters all across yes. North America. Um, and I'm gonna say North America because I know we are in Canadian territory and there are beautiful stories and incredible artists in Canada who are telling phen and phenomenal writers. Um, and we need to not just tell white upper middle class stories. That would be yeah. great. We gotta just, open the whole thing up. And I think that there, there's just, there's so much wonderful stuff out there. And I think part of what the pandemic has done for our community is like these people who may not be like the big names or anything like that. We have a platform mm -hmm. to like, anybody can run an online concert. I did one, but people are using it to take their work, their new work, these new exciting stories and perspectives and putting them online. And it's so exciting to see. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what theater could be like all the time. We could have started doing this like a couple of years ago 
and it makes it accessible to both the people who are telling the stories and the people who can see it and experience there it. There are no gatekeepers. Yes. There are no gatekeepers. TikTok has really taught yeah. us that. Yes. Year, right? Like Ratatouille made $2 million in 48 hours, yes. right? That that was a collaborative experience with multiple artists. We're looking at Barlow and Bear now with Bridgerton, yes. who are doing something incredible and they're catching the attention of incredible minds. This is a 19 and 21 year old young women who are writing this and showing every hour of their work. They're like, oh, you don't think we're doing this? Yeah. Cute. Watch us write it. Like, watch us write it. Brilliant, right? They're opening up their process to everyone else to see. There are, I, I'm working with a team right now on a new TikTok musical. And they came to me and they were like, Will you help us produce it. I'm like, absolutely I will. Because well, this is, it's a, it's a new frontier where you no longer need to ask permission to make your art. I mean, certain things we have to get rights for and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, sure. But, but like in the, in the whole, you can put it out there. You don't have to wait for a producer to say like, oh yes, this idea is worthy. Here's my coin. Like, no, you all did it with the mad ones, yeah. right? You created something and put it out yep. into the universe. Yep. And it's just, Magical. it's beautiful. Like, especially with the Mad Ones Lab, since you mentioned it, I have to touch on it. I say this all the time. It was so amazing to do that and to kind of have um, Kate and Brian be like, here is our show, our baby, and like, just kind of hand it to us and say, go make something. Mm -hmm. And Chrissy and I had so much fun uh, kind of diving into that and being able to kind of, you know, there were no rules. Yeah. Like there was a time limit, but there were no rules. Yeah, Correct. And it was, it was very freeing and just, it was also just fun to work on something together, despite the fact that we can't like see each other. <laughs> and every single person's segment was so different. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. magical. Everyone saw it in a different way. Um, and they were given permission to play and just make something. And it was magic how it all came together. It was so brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And I was... I remember telling my family, I was like, oh my gosh, there's people working on this who live in Japan who otherwise I probably would never even know. I would never meet. And we were just so fortunate to have that experience and get to meet you as well and, and get all this phenomenal knowledge now too. And it's really, yeah, so lucky. it's really cool mm -hmm. what's happened. And I have to just hop on back to something yeah. you said when you were listing, but the idea of like hustle culture and kind of getting rid of that idea, you know, that starving artist mindset that we're taught and kind of drilled in that, like you have to sacrifice for your art, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Well, then it's romanticized. Like, this yeah, is what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, this is what we do. This is what you have to do. And then like the value of your art kind of depends on that struggle, which like, baloney, baloney. I don't yeah. like it. And all I'm so out. glad that you brought it up because especially now, you know, I think we're, like you said, we're all learning the importance of just rest. And, you know, I don't know if anybody else feels the same way, but I've had so much time to like, train and work on myself without worrying about like the next deadline or this or that or anything. And I feel like as a, someone who loves the arts, as someone who creates, I feel like I've been able to grow and kind of step into myself more than I would had I was, if I were like running from audition to audition to audition. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also just when it comes to this idea of hustle culture and like, oh, you can only do a couple other things. You can be a nanny or you can be a waiter. And the the thing that has been so exciting, so many artists have this revolution inside of themselves that I feel like some have known for a while and some haven't, but like the skills that it takes to be a professional artist are so transferable to so many other careers that you can have a parallel career. Yeah. You can be a professional actor and something else, not or. Like you can do those things. You can be both. You can have a fulfilling career as a copywriter and an actor. You can have a fulfilling career as a full-time educator and an actor. Like there are so many things you can do. It does not have to be this like, oh, it's a waiter or nothing else. Like that's all you can do, folks. It, it's That just ain't it. It's not it in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so thrilling to see so many. I think people forget like, in the US, Ronald Reagan was, in my opinion, not a great president, but he was the president and he was an actor. He was a Hollywood actor for a long time. Like 
Yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> in the 1950s, Ronald Reagan was an actor in Hollywood. He starred in so many movies and then he was the president. And we think like actors aren't capable of doing anything else. Now, I don't agree with what Reagan did as a president, but he did the job. <laughs> Like at the end of the day, we've decided that actors don't have the skills or the capability to be political leaders or to be, you know, writers or doctors. Or Yes, you can. Yeah. You, you can. You have incredible speaking skills, listening skills, your intelligence levels and emotional intelligence levels are higher than so many other folks. I'm over it, friends. We can have parallel careers. We can do other things. We are, I give us permission to do it. Not that you needed my permission. Yeah. Well, actually, our prime minister used to be a drama teacher. So Trudeau? Yeah. Justin Trudeau used Was to teach like teacher? high school drama. Yeah. Shut up. It's true. That's Google cool. it. <laughs> I believe you, my love. See, but this is just further proof. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I know that when I wanted to go to school from for the arts, that was a whole conversation like I had to have with my family because, you know, they're teachers and all that sort of l- wonderful, wonderful stuff. But that's just not me. But you know, you have to have that conversation. But something that's so important is that any training that you do in the arts, it teaches you like how to be a human, like how to communicate with other humans, how to collaborate. And literally everything I have done, like that training comes in so handy because it's just being able to work with other people. To collaborate and most importantly, actors are professional listeners and most people do not know how to listen. And so that skill is valuable everywhere in every company in the world. So don't belittle your skill set either, my loves. Your training is vital for this life. Mm -hmm. So this is our second to last question. Okay. What would be your dream show to cast? Oh, Um, It has to be a show that exists already. It can be anything. If it's something that doesn't exist yet, it can be that. If it's something that does exist, like the world's your oyster. Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, I really love working on new projects. So I love it when no one else has ever read the script and I get to pick it up as the first casting director who's ever looked at it and be like, wow, my imagination gets to play on this text. That is always so sexy. I love it. If I got to cast any sort of revival on Broadway, I would want to cast Parade um, in this upcoming season. I want to see a revival of Parade starring Brandon Uranowitz and Carmen Cusack. I want it so badly. I can feel it in my bones. Um, But that's very selfish. I just, I want to hear Carmen Cusack sing all of that music forever. Yeah. (laughs) We love Carmen. Yeah. (laughs) want her, like, this is not over yet moment. Um, I'd also love to, oh gosh, I mean, there's so many shows I'd want to cast if that was the case. But honestly, I'm also, I really, really, really want there to be an immersive production of Bridgerton. Oh, yes. Um, Yes. I saw your TikTok about this, Kate. And please, for the people who aren't on TikTok, please tell them because I think it's just like, I'm obsessed. I think it's brilliant. I want to produce an immersive production of Bridgerton that takes place in an old manor house. And it doesn't even have to be the musical. I mean, I'd love for it to be Barlow and Bear's musical, but even if it's not, where you get to go and you get to experience that. And it is a highly theatricalized event with beautiful choreography and you kind of get to pick your track. And then there's a society, a Lady Whistledown Society paper that includes information about the uh, people who are coming to the event, Mm -hmm. not just the actors, like so much stuff, but uh, that to like produce and cast that would just, I'm also in a sweatshirt right now that is the Lady Whistledown Society papers. So like, I mean it. Um, I, that would just be tremendous. I, I hope moving forward that most of the work that I work on is immersive theater. I think it is um, the future of theater and it's what I really want to be a part of. So to produce and cast any of that, that's, that's the dream actually. I love that. That is so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's so (laughs) exciting. I love the idea of immersive theater. It's just, it's so much fun. You get to kind of, you don't just get to like absorb, you get to play, you get to kind of play with it. And I just, it thrills me. You know, we're in a golden age of television and people have access to the most elaborate, beautiful storytelling in a way that they never had before. And theater has traditionally been what that was. Um, and I think proscenium theater is is magical and I will always, always fight for it. But I think the next place where theater has to go, if we want to keep an audience, is fully immersive experiences for folks because 
that is how you step mm. into your television set. That is how you step into a, a fantastical world. Um, and I think it's incredible and, and people love it. I've, got, I've had the privilege of working on several shows and it's just magic. So that's where I want to go. I want to produce massive live immersive events. I love that. I want to buy a ticket to those. <laughs> great, great. Well, as soon as it all happens, I'll let you know. Yes, we'll be there. <laughs> great. Perfect. And our last question is because we are theater fans as well as, you know, the other things that we do, but at our core, we're theater fans. That's why we're here podcasting. And we want to ask you, you know, what's your love story with theater? Why, why is it something you chose as your calling? Why do you love it? Gosh. I mean, literally I keep this picture in every office that I've ever worked in. This is my childhood bedroom for folks on the podcast. You can't see it, but it's literally floor to ceiling okay. show cards that are framed on my wall as a kiddo. Um, like everything from Footloose to, <laughs> to Annie Get Your Gun to Millie to Scarlet Pimpernel, like they're all here. Um, and I keep it in every office that I work in to remember, you know, why I do this and where I came from. Um, I mean, I my parents, my parents played the My Fair Lady original Broadway cast recording into my mom's belly when I when she was pregnant in the 80s um, because they love it so much. Um, and I mean, I fell in love with it. My sister is about six years older than I am. And she was playing Annie. And she was like having me learn the, the lines with her. And I learned every other line in the entire script except for Annie's very quickly. And my parents were like, oh. Um, so I've been doing this like professionally since I was about eight years old. Um, so the truth is I couldn't even tell you my love story. Like it has been my whole life. I don't remember a time genuinely as a child that I wasn't doing this. Um, and so I don't know how to separate myself from the love story, which I think is the greatest love story of all. It's just a part of the fabric of who I am. Um, I've, I tried to step away from it for about six months and my husband can attest, I cried every single night and he was like, enough, <laughs> like, this is enough now, like, let's enough. Um, so it's just, um, I love watching human beings, um, express themselves fully. And I think theater gives people the opportunity to do that and gives people who can't the opportunity to, um, mm. feel that. And um, I think that's the only way that we can curate and create empathy in this world. And I think empathy is the only thing that makes life worth living. So that is my love story. I love that. <laughs> Good. Because again, it's the only thing I got, that's, friends. That's, that's it. Really that's beautiful. what it is. Whether you love it or not, that's, that's it for me. <laughs> oh, gosh. I am just feeling all the emotions right now. I feel so passionate inside <laughs> just listening to you speak this entire time. So Thank you so much for joining us. And I know our listeners are going to feel the same way as well. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on doing this amazing thing. It takes courage to, to start something. It takes courage to reach out and ask for people to come be a part of it. And I'm so grateful to have been a part of it. And I just think y'all are doing great things. So thank, thank you so thanks much. Thanks so much. That means a lot. Thank you. It does. It means so much coming from you. Like I said, we are so thrilled that you joined us today. And, uh, you know, listening to you speak is always really inspiring. So thank you. Thanks, friends.